I think Australian culture, uh, well, it's not one that you could describe as being rich in tradition, certainly not by world standards. We've got a much more relaxed attitude than many other cultures to things which are traditional. Now, we have traditions, there's no doubt about that, and certainly anyone who's ever moved to Australia from another country and another culture will be able to tell you all about the things that they find perplexing and confusing about the way Australians do things. Um, a friend of mine who'd moved from um, Sri Lanka as a refugee would often ask me to kind of help him negotiate Australian culture, to interpret the things that he was seeing and hearing around him that didn't make any sense. Um, one day he asked me, what do you say to someone when they say g'day to you? And my answer was, well, there isn't really a right answer to that question. He didn't find that particularly helpful. He wanted to know the, the correct way to respond. But I think even something like that in and of itself is a part of our tradition, isn't it? That Australia is quite an informal country, a relaxed country when it comes to social etiquettes. And of course, it's not the same everywhere. Australia is a very diverse and multicultural place. People have brought their different traditions with them as they've come to Australia from all over the world. Um, and so we're talking in generalisations here. Um, but we do have traditions. And well, I'm sure some of you know this already, that the word uh, that we have for tradition, it's an English word, but it actually comes from a Latin word originally, traditio, and that word means a handing down, to hand something down. And so traditions are simply that. They're things that are handed down from one generation to the next. Now, as I say, Australians aren't big on traditions, but we all have them. You've probably got traditions within your own family. Um, there are traditions that certainly come more to the fore with, with big events in life like uh, marriages and births and deaths. We have certain traditions for holidays and uh, significant days like Anzac Day or Christmas Day. And it's certainly true within churches, as Chris mentioned earlier. We, we're big on traditions. There are all kind of traditions within churches that build up over time. Some of those are helpful. Some are harmless. Some less so. Um, but I think anyone that would, came into a church who was unchurched for the first time might be very puzzled about our little traditions and our activities. I mean, let's be honest, even the furniture in here is a bit strange, isn't it? Uh, why do we all sit in rows on wooden pews? Why is there a, a big wooden pulpit? And uh, why, do, why do we do things like praying and praying with our eyes closed and bowing our heads? And why do we all say amen at the end? Now, I'm not saying these things are bad. Tradition in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's just something that's handed down. Um, and we see the, the word being used both negatively and positively in the Bible. Well, today we've got an instance where Jesus, well, it's on more on the negative end of that spectrum, I think. Um, the Pharisees reappear here in Matthew chapter 15. They've been missing for a few chapters. And, and they've got a bone to pick with Jesus about their traditions. So have a look there, verse 1 of chapter 15. says, When some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now here at last seems like a pretty sensible objection from the Pharisees. Uh, just good hygiene, isn't it, to wash your hands before you, you eat? Uh, but the Pharisees' question isn't about germs. Uh, it's not about uh, hygiene. This is a question about tradition. The Pharisees weren't the hygiene police of the first century, they were the moral police. There's a moral objection. 
And they're concerned about Jesus' disciples breaking this thing that they call the tradition of the elders. Now, to give you a little bit of background on that, um, the Jewish people, of course, had the law given to them by God in the Old Testament. But over the years, they'd also built up a whole bunch of other rules, uh, other rules and laws that they lived by, Um, some to varying degrees. People like the Pharisees took these things very seriously. And one of those traditions had to do with the washing of your hands before you ate. Now, the law in the Old Testament did have rules about washing, but in almost every instance, they were for the priests in the temple regarding ceremonial rites. Uh, For your average punter, your regular person, those rules didn't apply. But over time, these traditions had built up Uh, the traditions of the elders and people like the Pharisees took these things very seriously. And so they expected Jesus and his disciples to do the same and they're offended when Jesus' disciples don't follow their traditions, the traditions of the elders. And so Jesus says, well, okay, since you brought it up, let's let's talk about traditions. Um, And he begins by putting the hand-washing thing to the side for a moment and he talks to them about another of their traditions. Have a look at verse 5. Jesus says, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honour their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So again, a little bit of background to this one. Um, One of the traditions that had developed, I think, very recently, uh, before the time of Jesus, was this idea that you could make a vow or a pledge of money or property to the temple. Uh, to the temple treasury, and that this gift was somehow devoted to God. There's there's a word, korban, that shows up in some English translations as well, but it means you're devoting that that gift, that money, that property, whatever it was, to God. Um, It was kind of an IOU, so you didn't have to cough it up straight away, uh, but it had been pledged, you did it under oath, and you weren't meant to be able to get out of it. It was a serious thing. Now, we've got to remember that in the time that Jesus was operating, this is a culture that doesn't really have a welfare system. There's no Medicare, there's no pension. In this culture, your children were kind of your safety net. And it was a responsibility of children to care for and support their parents when they could no longer work. And so what seems to be happening here is that people were pledging their money or their property to the temple, to God, in this great public display of of piety and religious devotion and then saying to their parents sorry I can't help you now I've pledged that money to God and so Jesus says this practice which is being encouraged by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is in fact breaking the very command of God people through this are dishonoring their parents Jesus says it's a shameful thing so what Jesus exposes here is how the Pharisees would in fact prefer to dishonour their parents and indeed break God's law over and above breaking their own tradition. And so Jesus calls them out on that. In verse 7 there, he calls them hypocrites. He says, don't lecture me about traditions. Your traditions are a part of the problem. And he then goes on to quote from the book of Isaiah. Um, So pick it up there from verse 7. Stinging words these. You hypocrites... Jesus is talking here. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. 
It's a really tragic picture that Jesus paints here of people worshipping God, but worshipping God in vain. They seem to say all the right things. They're very religious people. But as far as Jesus is concerned, and as far as God is concerned, it all counts for nothing. Because these people don't know God. Their hearts are far from God. And their religion has become nothing more than a bunch of rules invented by people, just traditions that are built up over time. I think we need to sit with that for a while and feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. 2,000 years after Jesus, do you think there might have been one or two traditions that are built up over time? Traditions that may in fact be at odds with what God wants from us and, and for us? Perhaps at odds with things that God has made quite clear in the Bible? We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, Jesus hasn't actually answered the question that the Pharisees have put to him, but he does, he gets there. And that's kind of the second part of Jesus' response. And so Jesus says, listen, I'll, I'll tell you why my disciples don't wash their hands the way that you tell them that they should, because it's a waste of time. Jesus says, we don't have a hand problem. We have a heart problem. That our problem with God is more than skin deep. And so have a look at verse 17. Jesus kind of summarises his point from verse 17. He says, Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. The Pharisees had an obsession with the, the outside, the outward observances. Jesus says, you've got it around the wrong way. It's not the things on the outside which make a person unclean before God. That comes from the inside. So it's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out of it, which is a reflection of the heart. Now, we should recognise that Jesus didn't have a problem with outward observances as such. He was a Jewish man. He kept the law. He kept it perfectly. On a number of occasions with Jesus healing people, um, there's an incident where he heals some lepers and he tells them to go to the priest and to perform all of the outward rituals that the priest would prescribe for them in order for them to be declared ritually clean again. Um, Jesus wasn't in defiance of God's law, but he wasn't terribly interested in keeping the traditions of people. And so Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you're teaching people to relate to God through all these external observances. He says, you've got it all the wrong way around. You're trying to fix people from the outside in, but it's never going to work that way. Now, we wouldn't be so foolish, would we? We'd never value our traditions over and above God's word. We wouldn't try and replace a genuine relationship with God with observing a few outward signs. Perhaps so foolish to think that spending an hour in a special building once a week is, well, what God really wants of us. Or even that the right or the best way to praise God is only by singing songs that are somewhere between 50 and 200 years old. Or we wouldn't try and convince ourselves, surely, that 
by giving some money to the church or serving in one of the ministries of the church, that that's surely got to count for something with God. Do you approach your Christian life as though it's kind of a list of things that you need to to complete to keep you on side with God? Some good religious traditions, maybe that you observe daily or weekly or even once a year? Are you trying to relate to God through all the externals? Hear Jesus' warning from verse 8. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I think we need to ask ourselves whether or not that is true of us. Are we merely paying God some lip service? Is our worship little more than keeping a few nice church traditions? If that is you, well, I think Jesus is here presenting you with an opportunity to repent of that, to acknowledge that your so-called Christian life has mostly been for show. If that is you, God is calling you back. He's calling you back into a real relationship with him, a relationship that is much more than skin deep. Jesus calls us back to him. He asks us to throw ourselves on his mercy because he says he's the only one who can fix us up from the inside out. If that is you, are you ready to trade in your empty religion for the real thing? to put your trust in Jesus and to make him and live with him as your Lord. Well, the story in Matthew moves on. uh, And next we have a a rather surprising encounter between Jesus and a woman. Um, Jesus has gone into a kind of a Gentile-dominated region, area of Tyre and Sidon, we're told. Um, And a woman comes and finds him, uh, and she is desperate. So have a look at verse 22. It says, A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now, notice the first thing we're told about her. She is a Canaanite. Um, That means she's a, a Gentile, not a Jewish person. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know that the Canaanites have got a long history of run ins with God's people. Uh, They've been the sworn enemies of the Israelites for well over a thousand years. And this woman comes to Jesus and asks him for help, asks him to heal her daughter. Um, It's highly unusual that um, she would come to a Jewish leader for help, but she's just that desperate. And Jesus wants to show that those old racial divisions don't matter anymore. He wants to show us that his kingdom is for everyone. So she comes and begs Jesus for help. But Jesus' reaction is is curious to say the least. At first, he's silent. He doesn't respond at all. But she persists. The disciples encourage Jesus to send her away. And he says there in verse 24, look at that. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, I think Jesus here is probably being a little ironic in what he says. I think he's reflecting 
the attitude that existed amongst many of his people at the time. Um, but there is also a, a, a half-truth in what Jesus is saying here, I think, in that he did have a principle, and Jesus himself in his own ministry was primarily to his fellow Jews. Um, occasionally he has interactions with people outside of the Jewish community, um, but there is a sense in which Jesus' ministry was primarily to the people of God. But let's keep going. Jesus doesn't send her away, and so she actually comes, she kneels before him, she pleads with Jesus again, Lord, help me, she says. And then have a look at what Jesus says in verse 26. He says to her, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And you go, hang on a minute. Has Jesus just insulted this woman? Because in case you didn't get it, in this little analogy in what Jesus has just said, the children would be the people of Israel, God's children, and the Canaanites, the Gentiles, are the dogs. Now, I've read a few commentaries about this, and some people try and make out that what Jesus says isn't really an insult because the Greek word for dog here that Jesus was using was the household pet rather than the mangy street mongrel, but it's still a dog. Uh, so let's just sit with that for a second. Look at her response, though, verse 27. Rather than get offended by the language, she latches onto it. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, that's a surprising response. See, I don't think Jesus says what he says to humiliate her or to belittle her, but he does want her to appreciate her need, and he wants to understand that she appreciates her need. And she shows in her answer that she gets it. She shows that she's more than simply desperate to have her daughter healed, although she certainly is that. But even in the way she addresses Jesus, she, she expresses a, a great understanding of who he is. She's already called him the son of David, Master, Lord. She herself knows where she stands, that as a Gentile, she's outside the people of God. But she still comes to Jesus and she still asks for mercy. And so she finds it. It's a glimpse, in a way, into the new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring. A kingdom that's going to include people like her and people like us. People who are in desperate need. People who, by rights, deserve nothing from God's hand. It might seem impolite and insensitive to point out the fact that this woman was a Gentile in the way Jesus did, but it's pretty impolite and insensitive to point out that people are sinful too, isn't it? Or to declare, as the Bible does on numerous occasions, that people outside of Jesus are slaves to sin, in need of saving, facing the judgment of God. These aren't polite things to say, but it's a truth that we all need to confront. And this is where repentance begins, understanding who we are before God, recognising our need of God's forgiveness. Because until we see at least that, we're never going to be able to appreciate Jesus for who he is and what he's come to rescue us from. This Canaanite woman knew who she was, she knew who Jesus was, and so she asked for mercy. 
And Jesus says the kingdom belongs to people like her, people that will humble themselves before God and simply ask for mercy, or as she does here, just a crumb, just a crumb of God's grace. That is faith. And this woman had it. And Jesus commends her for it. There are two people in Matthew's Gospel who get singled out by Jesus for their great faith. He commends them for it. This woman and the Roman centurion back in chapter 8, both of those people are Gentiles, people outside the chosen people of God. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they're certainly not commended for their faith because their faith is now built on empty traditions and hollow religion, as we've just seen. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom to the world, to go beyond the, the borders and the ethnic boundaries of Israel. And what we've got here is just a foretaste of what is coming. It sure does seem like Jesus gave this woman a hard time, but she didn't see it that way. And in the end, she's blessed abundantly. She asks for a crumb. Jesus gives her the whole loaf. If you belong to Jesus, remember what a privilege it is to know him. We should never stop thanking God for the way he has and continues to bless us. There's a warning in this passage for us too that we should not be people who go looking in all the wrong places for the things that only Jesus provides. We need to be careful that we don't turn to traditions, trade in our relationship with God for religious rituals. Just to keep looking to Jesus, keep our eyes fixed on him, keep our trust firmly in him, that one, the only one who can mend and renew our hearts. We're going to respond in prayer and Leslie's going to lead us in that.